Hey everybody, this is Reagan Canope and Ben Bowman. Welcome back to the Oregon Bridge. I got the inside look of politics from the House Republican office. You know, if you're on the policy side of things, you really need to be in that building. It moves, you know, and constituent services, not that they they don't move, but it's got a different pace to it. And I actually think that it was the immersion into the constituent work that took place during COVID. At the end of the day, we've invested ourselves in our community. And I love the community I live in, and I like helping resolve issues. Well, Ben, today we had State Representative Raquel Moore Green as our guest. I'm going to read a little bit about her. So Raquel and her husband, James, they've been married for 35 years. They've got three kids, 13 grandchildren. They live in South Salem. She has served her community for a couple of decades. She's been an active member of the chamber, worked with the economic development said core in the Salem area, Salem City Club. She's been a local PCP. So Raquel has a pretty big resume. She's also a small business owner. We learned she worked for Representative Kevin Cameron, Commissioner Kevin Cameron, Senator Jackie Winters. And then in 2019, when Senator Winters passed away, Denise Bowles was in the House. She got appointed to the Senate and Raquel was appointed to the House of Representatives. And then she won her election in 2020. Redistricting happens, and she decides to run uh, for the Senate against Deb Patterson for a full term in that same seat as Senate District 10. And what we should note about this for listeners just here at the outset, it's sort of implied in our conversation, but this is, or maybe I do say it, this is probably the most or one of the most competitive legislative seats in the state. It's almost, I'm guessing they've one or both of them have cracked six or seven figures, Reagan, in terms of fundraising. I bet Representative Moore Green has raised over a million dollars. When all is said and done, I'm almost certain that over a million dollars will be spent on both sides, highly competitive. So yeah, that's the context. This is like a very, very competitive and expensive state legislative race this cycle. Good coverage of that, Ben. I would have to say one of the most interesting things for me with Raquel, and we kind of get into it at the front end of the episode, is like, she was a campaign manager, political consultant, uh, legislative staffer. Like she's had all the jobs that I've had, that Ben's had. And so it's super interesting to see because Ben, I kind of think of Raquel being at the, she's in the public service part. You are kind of in that middle stage where you're transitioning from being <laughs> staff to being a candidate. And I am still, I'm still hanging out here, hunkered down you're on the staff side. Happy, you're a lowly, as a, clam. a lowly staffer who is paid three times, four times as much as uh, as the representative is. Yes. So interestingly, Reagan, and perhaps unsurprisingly, you found the first half more interesting. I found the second half more interesting. So if you're a policy wonk or you're interested in like behavioral health and addiction issues, which I really am, that's what we focus in on on the second half. And this is something the representative has worked on in Salem, clearly is studying and uh, she she spoke at the CCO conference that I went to a couple weeks ago about this. So we talk about Measure 110. We talk about homelessness. We talk about, you know, how that's showing up with her constituents when she's campaigning. So, yeah, I found that really interesting and I appreciated her perspective. And I do think, you know, I, I would guess actually whoever wins this seat, like the senator from this district will be one of the leaders on this issue, because I think Deb Patterson works on these kinds of issues as well. 
So yeah, I enjoyed the conversation and uh, I hope it's useful and valuable for listeners too, particularly those who are trying to figure out like we've been campaigning on all these things and like mostly what you're hearing about behavioral health and homelessness and housing is like some version of a soundbite about what we need to do. But as we talk about in this episode, every single crisis we're facing will not be solved in two years. They won't be solved in a campaign cycle or in a budget cycle. So I just think it's important to be having conversations like the one we had today with uh, Representative Mort Green. Don't forget to subscribe. Don't forget to give us a five-star rating. And yeah, we'll see you back here next week. Hey, everyone, we're here. We're here with State Representative Raquel Moore Green out of Salem. Raquel, how are you doing? Very well. And thank you very much uh, for having me, Reagan. You as well, Ben. Thanks. So Raquel, when I think about you, the most important thing, if I have to introduce someone to Raquel, the number one thing I think people need to know about you is that, you know, you've done tons of great stuff. Obviously, you're a legislator. You've been in the community. You've served all kinds of things. But the number one thing I tell people about you is you've been a legislative staffer and you've been a campaign staffer. Because mm-hmm. when I've learned those about you, when I met you a few years ago, those things stuck out to me because it seemed like a lot of the way that you handle yourself now is because of those things. So walk us through a little bit about your history as a legislative and a campaign staffer. Like who have you worked for? What did you do? That kind of stuff. Thank you, Reagan, for the the question and and the opportunity to explain that particular facet of of my background. And um, it's a little bit of a story, but I think it's worth worth telling. And I'll, I'll back up to even a little further back. So when we were living in Seattle, Washington, we lived there in the late, oh, in the 80s. We lived there in the 80s. And I happened to stumble upon a job at Boeing through their BEGNF, which is their Boeing Employee Good Neighbor Fund program, and ended up staffing one of the executives. And that assignment was United Way of King County. So I became familiar with, that's where campaigning really first started for me. And for me, there's a beauty about campaigning. There's a, there's a start date and there's an end date. There's a goal and you've got benchmarks along the way, right? So it's pretty well laid out. And fast forward to moving to Salem in the late 90s. Uh, well, we moved here in the mid uh, 90s, but in the late 90s, I took a part-time job with United Way of Midland Valley and I was a camp- part-time campaign manager. We were still, two two of our three children were still in school. I did those mom hours, right? You know, 10 to two or in the summertime, you get up real early and you go in and you're home before the kids have lunch, right? Something like that. Then fast forward to 2010, um, I was sitting at a lunch. It was a Salem Chamber business lunch and I was sitting next to Kevin Cameron. And I, and he was then a representative in House District 19, South Salem, Turner and Almsville are the, the current configuration. And um, we were chatting and I said, you know, I've, I've been meaning to get a little bit more involved with um, politics. Our last one went to college. And so now I feel I have more time that, you know, I don't, I'm not constricted anymore. And it's not a constriction. It was a, you know, I, I loved raising my children and, you know, it's the one job you can't do over again. I couldn't have, you know, you just get to a point, you don't have any more kids. They're all gone. And that piece well, of the, life is over. The payoff and, is now the payoff is now when you've got 13 grandkids I yeah. saw in your bio. <laughs> that's, that's true. Let's not go down that rabbit hole quite yet. Okay. <laughs> Thanks, Ben. So so then um 
you know, I said, I'd, I'd love to volunteer for, for your campaign. And he said, Hey, come on by, let's, let's talk. And, you know, you can meet my man, you can meet the, the woman who's doing my volunteer recruitment and this, that, and the other. Oh, great. So I went and had a conversation with him and we talked, oh, maybe it was a good hour. It was a good solid hour. And I said, well, just let me know what you, you want, because what I, I guess my strong suit in the volunteering over all the years, and this goes back to, you know, having my first child, Mike, you know, playing base, uh, uh, no, not baseball, t-ball mm-hmm. and being a t-ball mom and coordinator. Uh, yeah, I work well, I seem to work well with people and coordinating things and getting things done and really wanted to help them with volunteers. He calls me and he said, Hey, you know, I've been talking with my staff and how about if you come and manage my campaign? <laughs> <laughs> to political campaign. He said, oh, you can do it. You know, it's, you know, six months. And, and I had another part-time job at that point because I um, had found something that I enjoyed doing and it was a limited duration. It was about 12, 18 months. I was going to help out a local nonprofit here in town and part-time, flexible, all of those things. So I went and I talked with that employer and explained, you know, the position. And, and certainly I didn't want to compromise anything because, you know, oftentimes, Private employers really don't want to be associated with a particular campaign, right? right. I get that. And, um, you know, the the woman I was working for said, well, I, I think you can manage that. I think, you know, you've got a good balance. And so um, he said six months. That was in June. I would be done, you know, in December. All done, right? He says, just six months part-time. That's well, the number one lie in politics. <laughs> it is. It is. It's, it's never six months and it's never part time. No. no. <laughs> and that happened to be the year to the listening audience. If you know, if you can go back that 12 years in, in uh, Oregon politics, that the House became 30 30. There were 30 Democrats and 30 Republicans. Yeah. And that, that was historic. And monumental in so many ways. And I, I will inject at this point that the late Senator Jackie Winters said that the best session that happened in Oregon was that session. We had two speakers. It was uh, the Honorable Arnie Roblin and the Honorable um, Bruce Hanna. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we had two speakers. We had two leaders. Well, obviously the Republicans had their leader, but but you know every everything was uh, was divided and equal. Um, the chairs of the committee they were co-chairs. There was one Republican, one Democrat, and so anything that came through that committee, any bill that was going to be listened to, was vetted first through those those chairs, right? And you know then then Representative Cameron said to me, "Hey." why don't you come work for me in the HRO, the House Republican office? And I said, nah, you know, I'm still trying to do this part-time thing and I've got this other job, I do, you know, and, uh, you know, still trying to do that balance of um, where we were empty nesters and thinking, wow, this is, you know, going to be the time. I worked two days a week in the office. I job shared with another woman and I had two days. She had two days. And so I got the inside look of politics from, from the House Republican office and then uh, went on to continue to uh, his, uh, what we called community outreach. He had a couple of us and, and I was community outreach and campaign and he had a legislative staff and we, uh, we worked. We, it, it, was, um, it was wonderful. And uh, 
you know, so out of session, continued to do his uh, outreach form, his community engagement, all of his scheduling, all of those things that, that go in newsletters, all, all of that. And then we'd come back into session and I work, you know, part-time in, in, well, I wasn't even part, part, I mean, I was part-time and I was in the office. And so I got an inside look to, you know, how does this all work, right? How, how do bills come together, the negotiation, the working across the aisle, so on and so forth. And then um, in 2014, commissioner, uh, pardon me, then representative Cameron decided to run for commissioner. And so I managed that campaign for him and uh, left the legislature, so to speak, right? And I had just a very small solopreneur business. I I had various clients. I had some nonprofit. I picked up a couple of um, measures that that I ran. And, you know, that was a really interesting campaign to do. It was a um, stop the payroll, the employee payroll tax here in Salem. And it was Mm, was a local yeah, it was a local measure. And so it, it was just really interesting working on a single issue instead of a candidate, right? Mm-hmm. And and all of the things that go into a candidate. I mean, a lot of the same components for campaign, but just it had a different feel, a different tone to it, you know? So that that was enjoyable. And then I picked up a, a couple of uh, another commissioner who happened to be running um, and needed some help and had the honor of helping um, then commissioner Sam Brentano with his reelection in 2016, ran a, a house race for uh, candidate Laura Moret. Uh, she was running in House District 20 mm-hmm. and picked up a DA a couple, couple years later, um, continued to help then commissioner Cameron with his campaigns until and, and then in um 2018, I was asked to um, manage the late Senator Jackie Winters campaign. And um, by that point, I had a pretty full plate of small clients. Well, small in that, you know, I had a job here and a little here and a little there. And it fits my personality well. And it it really helped a lot of people out who wouldn't normally be able to to have a quote consultant, you know, help them out mm, yeah, their businesses. Yeah. Uh, I, 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 you want me? <laughs> <laughs> want me <laughs> to run your campaign or help you manage your? Yes, 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 yes. So I, uh, I signed on with her and and I helped manage that campaign with a couple of other campaigns. It, it was a very intense um, season for me that year. Who was the Democratic nominee in that race? Do you remember? Because that would have been a pretty competitive, I'm guessing, a lot of money spent on that race. It was Deb I, Patterson. It was. Oh, yeah. that's what I, okay. There, yes, there was a woman by the name of Jackie who ran against Jack, you know, Jackie and Jackie. And I think that must have been 14 then. Okay. So 2018 was Deb Patterson. Right. Mm-hmm. Okay. Got it. Okay. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you, Reagan, for clarifying yeah. that. And, you know, here again, just manage the campaign. I just need you from, you know, I think I think I went on staff with her right after the primary. I might have been in the primary. I don't remember now. You know, just through November, you know, you clean up in <laughs> November, right? And, and the phone call comes in December. <laughs> and, um, and it's from her chief of staff saying, well, the senator would like you to, you know, come work for her in the Capitol. And I was really conflicted because here again, you don't want to, I, 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 I hate to turn a client down, but at the same time, I had other clients and I, I can't compromise my other obligations. 
So they, uh, car, apparently they, they had a niche that they wanted me to be in and it was constituent services. And, you know, that, that was something that I felt comfortable with and something that I could also manage if I was not in the building. And that was kind of an important component. You know, if you're on the policy side of things, you really need to be in that building and you, you know, you, it's, it moves, you know, and constituent services, not that they, they don't move, but it's got a different pace to it. It's got a, a different, uh, I don't have to be in the building to do it. And so carved that out. And I was in the building a, a couple of afternoons a week. And one was to stay current with the staff and the tone of, of what was happening in the building. And then one afternoon, uh, of course, we we had our staff meeting and we, we met with the senator and we we kind of went around the horn. You know, we sat there and she'd say, okay, so what do I need to know? What's happening? What do I need to know? And, um, you know, then, then she became ill. And uh, at the point that um, she was no longer in the office, we stepped up hours of, of everybody to kind of help cover that void. And, and then, you know, she passed in, in May and um, I spent a lot of time making sure that, that, that things were moving smoothly in the office. Her chief of staff, Pam McLean, is her daughter-in-law. And so it was um, not only a you know, a professional loss, but, but a very, very personal loss for, for Pam and for the family. And um, so, you know, that's that kind of then landed me in, in uh, June of 2019 and the whole process of uh, trying to find some replacements uh, came about. So that's, yeah. uh, you know, in, a, in a nutshell, <laughs> sorry. So, <laughs> no, you're totally fine. Go ahead, Ben. Yeah, so, so then you become... The person whose name and face is on the flyers, and uh, <laughs> and so I, what I've been curious and and wanted to ask you about was like a specific moment. Redistricting happens, right? You you're relatively new to the elected side, but probably I'm guessing given by the fact that you're continuing to run, you're enjoying it, feeling like you have something to offer. Yes, redistricting happens, and everything shifts dramatically, right? Like all the all the maps were there's all these maps and who knew what was going to happen until it happens. And right. without we've litigated redistricting plenty on this podcast. Yeah. So we don't need to go there. We don't need to go there. <laughs> but but what I what I'm curious about is like there's a moment where the maps get adopted and you've got a series of choices. One is I'm done. I don't want to do politics anymore. I'm gonna go hang out with my grandkids. One is I'm running for re-election in a seat that just got a lot harder to win in. And I think I think that was Clem, right? You and Clem were put in the same. Yes, we, we were um, district in together, right? Yeah. So and he's not running, but it's a hard district or you could run for the Senate in what I think most people would describe as the most competitive or certainly one of the two or three most competitive in the state. So you ultimately decide to run for the Senate. I'm curious, like when you're in the moment before a decision has been made. What are you thinking about? Who are you talking to? What is your what's going through your head when you're trying to evaluate basically what your life is going to look like for the next year? You know, so I was appointed in in July of 2019 and then uh, elected in 2020. And in 19, in 2019, you know, I had in my head the anticipation of running in 2020 because that was one of the questions that that the commissioners asked, you know. So are you just going to hold this seat for to, to finish up the term, which was 18 months? Or are you are you in this? Are you invested? Mm. And I said, yes, I'm invested. So I'm I will be running and I will put my name out in 2020. And I had in my mind what my campaign was going to look like, right? I'd, I'd done this, you know, 
you know, at least <laughs> by that point, I'd run at least eight or nine campaigns, right? And then COVID happened, right? And that really um, shifted the landscape completely mm. and on, on many levels. And I actually think that it was the immersion into the constituent work that took place during COVID. If you remember, there were um, hundreds, if not hundreds of thousands of people on, on unemployment. Yeah, um, like you know, immediately. People, yeah, people trying to get health care. Um, uh, you know, DMV, it, our, our whole way of life was just upended. And, and so we had these massive uh, amounts of emails and calls that, that would come in. And then, and then you coupled that with, we had daily briefings and I don't realize, I don't, I don't know that the public realizes um, all that went in, in, into the demand that was made on the legislators and a pure honor to serve. And, and here again, very fortunate that I'm, I'm in a position where um, my husband has been very um, supportive and uh, extended a lot of grace to me to to do to do this job. I mean, he just yeah. really has extended an immense amount of grace. And um, I I think for me, kind of looking back, um, that constituent work, you know, that that community piece, because um, that that's that's where I come from. I mean, I'm uh, um, at the end of the day, we've invested ourselves in in our community. And I love the community I live in, and um, I I like helping resolve issues. You know, it's it's like the child who comes to me with the puzzle; they can't get the puzzle to go together. You know, come on, mom, you can help me do this, right? Yeah, let's do this together. Let's, you know. But by the by the time I'm done with the child, my my child, my child now has those skills, right? I mean, that that's really ultimately what I'm looking for is that you know what what is that we can do to help people to get to where they need to be so that they can continue on and flourish. Right. I mean, it's, it's, uh, you know, bringing, uh, you know, helping them come to a level where they feel that they have what they need to move forward. And so, um, when, when redistricting came around, um, boy, uh, yeah, I, I think the, the blow for me, uh, was really, that um, uh, then Speaker Kotek uh, changed the composition of, of the committee. You know, going in thinking that we've got a shot at this, right? We're, we're gonna come up with something that's, that's, that's reasonable for everybody in the state, not, not, not just my community. And, um, you know, so that was uh, September, late September. So almost exactly a year ago. And that, that's when um, I did some real real soul searching. You know, was that a year ago, guys? Or was that two years ago? It was, it was a year, one year ago. Wow. It's crazy. It's been a year. <laughs> yeah, it has been a year. Um, so, some real soul searching. And, you know, first off, talk with my family. You know, what, uh, what, are, what are they willing to, to sacrifice? Because it did is you, a sacrifice for them. Did you have conversations about, like, listen, if I do this, it's a very competitive seat. People are going to say oh, things yeah. about me. There's going to be TV ads. Like you might get dragged into it. Those conversations happen. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, um, I, I think they had already seen that through the 2020 election and, and, uh, you know, um, uh, 
Um, I mean, and, and there were things about, you know, said about me in, in 2020. And, and so you be, you become prepared for that. You know, you gird yourself for it. And, um, uh, you know, and, and I was talking with somebody to, earlier today about this exact thing that, um, you know, as, as a candidate, um, I know myself and I'm, um, I'm, I'm grounded. I know, I know who I am. I know where my value is. And I, I believe my family knows who I am and, and they know what my, where my value comes from as well. It's incredibly hurtful to them. Yeah. Um, you know, for me, I, I don't know. I mean, it's, it's kind of like, you know, um, you do what you need to do in, in order to, to get things done sometimes. Right. And, and um, so I, I, um, I, I've seen that a lot. I mean, I see, I, I've worked with a lot of different candidates on their campaigns and not, and the number one thing you see is that the candidates usually don't take the hits as hard as the family does. Yes. The family actually takes it a lot harder, um, which I find super interesting because that's not how you'd expect it to go. Um, and certainly that's not always the case. Some candidates do take it harder than others, but um, I think you're right with that, where it's like, you were, you were already ready. You had been a staff, you knew it was coming, but the the family members, even if they technically kind of see it on the outside, until it's you, they don't really get very, you know, it doesn't bother them, right? Well, the, so. the, the flip side too, um, this happened to me this cycle where, um, like, I, I agree with you, um, Representative, like, I can take the criticisms, and particularly when it's a criticism on, like, something I believe, or, like, something, <laughs> like, I've done, I've said, I imagine that I voted for. I'll, I'd probably quibble about the context that's presented in or whatever, but um, <laughs> there was there was uh, a group that went onto my partner's social media page mm -hmm. and took a picture of us that he had posted, um, and, like, I was like frustrated but like the frustration was more about the fact like come after me don't come after the person who literally has nothing to do with politics and did not put his name forward to be in the public space he's just attached to someone so i don't right. know if you like i imagine that that like you know when you've got family especially if you've got a big family like there's probably mm -hmm. a lot of different um perspective yeah. like did you did any of your kids or, or grandkids or say like, mm, I'm not sure if this is worth it, or did you have to talk through any of those challenges? Well, um, um, you know, my, my adult children, um, you know, my, my daughters, uh, I think are, are much more sensitive, mm -hmm. being female, you know, not, not that, the, that my son isn't, <laughs> don't get me wrong, but I think they, um, I, I think they have greater reservations you know, and, yeah. and, um, so two of our three children were raised here in, in Salem. Um, Mike is from my first marriage and he was seven when James and I married and, um, we lived in, um, uh, Redmond, Washington. And so he was, mm -hmm. he was raised there and we moved here the summer that he went to college. So Mike never, this really wasn't his community, so to speak, you know, um, but it was definitely the girls' community, and um, uh, so I th I think they probably see things a little bit differently too because it's their community, and uh, and you know they they know people, right? Their, their yeah. friends are seeing the advertisements. Mm -hmm. Their teachers from yeah. from school yeah. are hearing sure. the rumors. Yeah, mm -hmm. yeah, yeah. So right. I think I think it's a little different for them 
And, and my grandchildren who are here at the moment um, are three of the 13 live here in Salem and they're um, six, seven months, two years and uh, four years old. And so I just have to tell this quick story, okay? Sure. So of course there's mail, right? There's mail that comes. And, and so my daughter was sorting through the mail and uh, she put one of uh, my mailers down. She happens to live in, in district. And, and Benedict, the two-year-old, he picks it up and he sees my picture. And he says, Grandma. <laughs> <laughs> so that was, that was cute. You know, they're, they're too young to, uh, to understand any of the other stuff, you know. Um, and, and Grandma is who Grandma is, you know. And uh, they don't know anything different, you know, yeah. at this point. Yeah. Yeah, but I don't remember where we were before that question. So. I think Ray, that's Reagan's okay. Got one. Okay. I'm a, so mine is I want to get you give you a chance to talk about the issues that you're running on, mm -hmm. and my it's a pretty simple question. Hopefully you've answered it um, before. But what are your kind of your top two issues that you're? I guess they would be considered campaign issues, but stuff you specifically want to address if you go to the Senate, right? Voters choose you. You go to the Senate. Are there a couple main things that you really want to tackle in the 2023 session that you think? are critical to Oregon and to your district. Yeah, thank you. Um, yes, and um, uh, on the doors, um, the issues are crime, homelessness, and inflation. I mean, this is what we hear over and over and over again. And um, uh, I think it's a theme that is is fairly statewide and, and um, uh, it, it's, it's sad that we find ourselves in the chaos that, that we find ourselves in. I was speaking with a, um, uh, a group um, this morning. Um, there was a meet and greet and um, I, I said to them, you know, I've lived here for 30 years and I have never in my life <laughs> seen um, keep individuals on the street the way that we do today. And Salem doesn't look like Portland, but we're not far from it, you know? Um, and uh, it, it breaks my heart. I was stopped the other day at a corner just north of the Capitol. And here's a gentleman pacing back and forth and he's got his head, you know, um, bent down and kind of in a quasi fetal standing position. And he's muttering back and forth and, and pacing and um, he doesn't have a shirt on, um, flip-flops, pair of shorts. And, you know, I'm not an expert, but from what law enforcement and um, uh, our community health workers have, have said, you know, you see somebody like that and they're probably in the middle of a, a psychotic episode. I mean, that breaks my heart. Uh, you know, we, we have abandoned them as a state. You know, we we did away with with Damish. We did away with Fairview. We we uh, the big we. Okay, many years ago made the decision. Well, we're going to have uh, community mental health, and they you know they have failed to fund it, and they have failed on the leadership for it. In my in my estimation, and I think this is what we're seeing. Um, it, you know, uh, and if, along with that comes. Um, you know, the, the decriminalization of hard drugs. And, um, you know, when, when 40 pills of fentanyl is legal to have on an individual, that is what is legal for me to carry. That's deadly. That, that, that's not a casual user's amount of fentanyl. You know, um, 
and 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 so I, I guess what I want to talk about these two issues. Um, one has to do with behavioral and mental health, and and riding the ship on the Oregon State Hospital, and riding the ship on on um, uh, the services that that we have, and having the big conversation that um, you know nobody should be put away forever for, for mental illness. I think we've all, you know, we've come so far in, in our culture to understand that that's not what we do. You know, we help to restore as much as possible, but you know what? There are some individuals who perhaps will always need assistance more than, I mean, it's, it's the same. It, it, and one of the analogies shared with me um, earlier this summer is, you know, if I have a, a, a grandparent or a parent who is suffering from Alzheimer's, you know, we have the discussion with the doctor and, and we see to it that, that they are taken care of properly. Why aren't we doing this, you know, for, for the individuals who, who can't take care of themselves? So that, that's, that's one, one area that I would, yes. Um. I am really glad you're talking about this. I've been spending time thinking and trying to develop my own thoughts about this. Um, so given the narrative that you've described, which I think is right, right? We, ha we had these state institutions, we decided that those were not the right answer. So we basically defunded these based on the promise that we're gonna invest in community um, op opportunities, community options for mental health. That never gets built. That combined with the fact now that like, it's impossible to staff many of these places because the workforce challenges are, in fact, I think, were you at the CCO conference? Yeah, I, I, I got to speak. I was gonna say, I thought I heard you speak there. So this was big topic of conversation at the CCO conference. Do you have any thoughts on like what we do with that? Like, is it expand capacity of the state institutions in the short term? Is it build yeah. workforce pipelines? And like, what can we actually do to remedy a really acute problem that's happening like right now? Yeah. Well, first off, it's it's just going to take time. Okay. So let's let's say we we come to an agreement on what the solution is, just to build facilities, just to get people into to staff. Okay. So we we know that that we've got um, it, it's going to take a little bit. I mean, if I could just make a footnote. So Salem Hospital just built a new wing, 150 beds, but it, it's there, but there's no staff. And they're not, they're not to secure residential. I mean, this is just healthcare, you know, folks who need to be in hospital. That's just a footnote. So even, even in communities where there perhaps is, is a place for them, we don't have the workforce yet. So that, that's another, uh, um, a long conversation there. But I, I think, Ben, the really important thing for me um, as a leader is to lead on the conversation of how are we going to do this? We, we know that, that um, we, we don't want, um, uh, you know, facilities like Damish and, and Fairview. We know that delivering services in the community is much more challenging and difficult than what they thought it would be 20, 25 years ago. It really is. It's much more difficult than what, what we had thought. And so um, how are we going to do this? You know, we don't want to take away an individual's rights, but at the same time, the mom walking her kids down the, the street with the stroller with somebody in, in a psychotic episode, that's that's not, 
it's not fair to to either party, right? right? And so how do we want to do that? Now, if I could just just hold that for a second, let's talk about capacity, bed capacity. You know, there's, I, I still remember being in committee in, in behavioral health committee um, and, and we were having, I don't remember if it was an informational um, part of our agenda or if it, there was a bill that we were discussing. But I, I um, queried um, capacity and beds. Mm-hmm. And th- the response I received was, we can't build our way out of this with beds. And, and I stopped. I said, no, no, no. I, I understand that. I mean, that, that doesn't do anything for anybody, right? I, but my, my point, and I went on to make, is our population has grown. Over the last 10 years, we've gained a million people. Yeah. Okay. Not only have we gained a million people, but we've legalized some drugs along the way that have compromised the health of some of these individuals, right? So you, you just do this simple math. You know, if we had 10% at, at, you know, with 30, and I have no idea what percentage, you know, what, at, yeah. why, why is going to grow just because the population grew. And, and so, um, so in a, in some, in a simplistic way, I would, I would say, of course, we need more secure residential treatment um, area uh, uh, facilities. And I, and I think we're seeing this come true. Um, and so how do we go about doing that? And how do we ease some of the restrictions and some of the processes? I mean, I have, I have talked to, to uh, uh, com- companies, you know, representatives of, of companies that have attempted to, to open beds OHA does not make it easy. Yeah. They, you know, uh, what well, we had a hundred beds up in Wilsonville that they were ready to go on. And I don't, I don't know if you remember this, Ben, I, I think Reagan may, but um, you know, they, they go in, they get all of their paperwork pulled in and, and uh, I don't remember all of the going back and forth and the negotiations back and forth. It had been five years to get to that point. And, um, you know, it, it, you know, they come back, well, we, you need this, 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 and this, and, you know, their pencil, the company's penciling out and it's not going to pencil out. So, um, that, that's really helpful and, and, and interesting insight. Um, and it does seem to me that our government, you know, I can't remember which you mentioned inflation, crime, um, and homelessness. Homelessness. Yeah, I th- I think of it as homeless, different, maybe different a little bit, but similar. Homelessness, housing, behavioral health, and like all different versions of what I would describe as crises. And it does feel to me like state government doesn't have the the tools or the structure or the function to like rapidly move towards addressing them because there's well, so many like safeguards and checks and balances. And I think coming from a good place, right. Trying to sure. minimize waste, fraud, abuse, trying to minimize legal liability, but like it's prevented us from being able to like move quickly as these crises have ratcheted up super quickly. We're spending five years reviewing paperwork, you know? Yeah. Right. right, you know, and and I think um, you know when when we stop and uh, you know the way you laid out um, um, what what perhaps you're hearing on the doors, yeah, you know, um, um, 
the world that uh, of problem solving that that I've spent the better part of my my adult career in has been multifaceted, right? I mean, the homeless issue is multifaceted, but but the structure we have in the legislature to address the issue is not multifaceted. There's the housing committee. There's the behavioral health committee. Yes, yes. There's this. And, you know, that's where I would come in and say, hey, you know, let's all come together and, and let's have a planning session. Let's let's talk about it. And, you know, I'm a big, big visual, I, you know, a whiteboard or whatever the case might be. Let's throw those ideas up there and let's make sure that when we're talking about housing and we're talking about um, homelessness, that that we understand the different dynamics that are going into it. And that's not done in a silo because when you, when, when, when we're talking about reducing rules and regulations for building that's across the board, you know, that, that shouldn't just be in one area. Right. And um, uh, what are the levels? I mean, I think somebody, there's going to be a report or maybe it just came out of the number of housing that we need well, I'll be interested to see the report because it, is it actually parceled up so that I can say, oh, well, we need so much low entry, low barrier for homeless, and, and we need so much um, uh, secure residential treatment because in essence, that's housing for them, right? I mean, that mm-hmm. is their housing until they can they can move on, right? Because that, that is the goal is to get them back into the community, to restore them so that they can be part of the community. I'll build off your, so um, I had um, Governor Kitzhaber spoke at my campaign kickoff and he basically oh. said exactly what you said, which is <laughs> which is like the, the legislature is structurally designed to isolate policy issues separate from it each is. other. And the other thing he added to it, which I thought was really interested, interesting is none of these problems can be solved in a two-year election cycle or budget cycle. None. They have to be long-term. So you have to be able to maintain an investment strategy. You have to be able to maintain a workforce strategy, a policy strategy, um, despite political winds blowing, despite leadership turnovers. And like those two things together, the like isolation of policy and the long-term nature make it really hard to solve. And like, that's why Kitzhaber's vision, I think, um, and we should have him on to talk about this, is like, you need to build a big table of people who mm-hmm. all are bought in towards the vision. Absolutely. Absolutely, Ben. Push. Yeah. I, you know, I think about um, one of the projects that I worked here um, in Salem on, uh, um, you know, here's a group that, that wants to do a capital campaign, right? And so we sit down and we start to strategize, right? Okay, so... Um, who, who are your new neighbors going to be? Who, who are the people that can make investments, you know? And, and you, you start to build that table and, and pretty soon you have this organization, you have this special interest group, um, it, you know, you have this municipality and that municipality, you know, and, and it is building a big table and it is sitting down and, and coming up with that, that vision of what are things going to look like. And, you know, then ultimately, uh, you know, in this particular case, you hand the reins back over to that entity that has then accomplished uh, their goal and, and will continue to carry out their mission, right? And and so to the degree that uh, government is essentially the same thing, right? You, you've, you have an issue, that's your table. And then who are all the players that need to, to be talking, you know? And um, uh, and, and, and then where's the leadership to say, okay, this is, this is what's in place and what will move forward. And I think then if I could just 
now inject the fact, uh, or not the fact, but but one of the statements that I have made over and over again is I am I'm a big fan of saying homelessness, money, local community, county, city. Here you go. These are the, the these these are your metrics. You know you need to, but please resolve the issue the way your community wants to resolve it. Okay, and. Um, uh, because we saw that with cahoots. I don't know um, mm-hmm. if, the, if you followed Eugene. that. Yeah. Yep. Okay. So here's this terrific program in, in, in Eugene that has been incredibly effective. It was it was a um, what I would call a grassroots, right? That it started out, and over the years, it it has grown. It, it has gotten its structure. It has come to address. Um, the the homeless uh, issue the, the, where homelessness and, and uh, law enforcement intersect, right? Yep. You know, um, and and mental health, where those three intersections are made, and and they've got a model that works. Well, in comes a bill in the twenty one session um, saying, oh hey, if you do a cahoots model, you know, we've got we're going to put ten million dollars aside and you do a cahoots model. Well. Uh, you just can't walk into a community and say, here's the model, execute it, especially mm-hmm. when um, it, it's not a recipe like like baking bread where you need so much flour, you need so much yeast, you need so much warm water, and you will have a loaf of bread. That That's that's not, yeah. communities are not that way. And, and I can, I, and I, um, you know, I had some very good conversations with the folks who brought that, that concept to me. And I said, you know, I think that's great, but I, I don't think it should have to be the cahoots model. It, it should be, that's um, the, the, the um, division. These are the outcomes we want. And here's a model. And if you think it will work for your community, then get connected with those folks and figure out how it worked there. But here's the money to do it. It almost and sounds... It almost sounds like the CCO model you're describing, right? Like here's a global well, budget, is. go yes. and make investments upstream that are going to produce good outcomes. You have quality metrics. Right. Um, well, because I mean, every community has different assets, right? You can't assume yes. that every community is going to be built. Like maybe cahoots works if every if you do it in another community that has all the same stuff Eugene does. But mm-hmm. all so many different communities are built different ways, and some of them have really great this, but they, they have a lot of deficiency here. And so it's yeah. like if you just tell them to go do this. They may not be able to build it because there there just might be this part that their community can't replicate, and yeah. so it falls apart. Yeah. Um, Rep- Representative, I want to ask you one um, additional follow up to a comment. Yes, you earlier, please. And, and then we'll go to Reagan, um, probably to close, depending on time. Um, <laughs> one thing I'm super dissatisfied with right now in Oregon politics is the conversation around Measure 110, mm-hmm. because it seems like there's like a group of people who are like repeal measure 110, it caused all these problems. And then there's these other people who are like measure 110 was great and voters strongly support it. And like, and it seems to me, I don't think measure 110 is gonna be repealed. Uh, I think the margin was pretty big. The polling that I've seen is pretty strong. And I think the voters thought they were voting on like two two simple things. Should addiction be uh, a criminal justice issue or public health issue? And they said public health. Uh, and should we spend more money on treatment? And they said, yes. That's what I think most voters thought they were voting for. But as we all know, the framework beneath it is actually really complicated. Yes. And so my specific question for you, and I don't know, you've probably spent some time thinking about this too, is 
I have a friend who describes like the problem with measure 110 is the criminal justice system was a bridge to treatment. It might not have been the right bridge, but for some people, it was a bridge to treatment. We took away that bridge and we haven't sufficiently built additional bridges to connect folks. Do you have any thoughts on like what those bridges Uh, could look like? I I just can't thank you enough for that question, Ben. (laughs) Because I I have given a lot of thought to this. I am. Uh, So the um, measure 110 was put into statute with Senate Bill 744. And and, um, what uh, is sitting on the behavioral health side of the fence and on the other in the other chamber, um, you know, I I was scrambling to figure out. So where's measure 110? Who's who's doing what with 110? Because I'm looking at it from the behavioral health, you know, Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. uh, aspect. And um, so I um, got connected with the the um, work group on the Senate side and was able to listen in on a lot of the discussion that went on. I, I um, provided some input on it uh, um, and uh, um, and and so now we 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 have statute that we've looked at for two years now, right? It's been in effect. and and this is what I would propose then. I believe that the people of Oregon said we need to treat substance abuse, period, full stop. And we want to fund that through marijuana tax money. And I think we need to hang on to that piece. Okay. And um, uh, around the, 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 uh, the, the legalization of the drugs that are causing so much of the problems that we're seeing, unfortunately. Um, that what we need to do there is we need to, we need to say, okay, we all know that we need to do a little bit more here. So, and, and track with me on this. Um, are you familiar with community corrections? So that when an individual comes out of jail, um, they have a parole, parole and probation officer, right? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. They have a program set up for them there are services available to them. Oftentimes, at least in Marion County, um, those services begin six months before um, the um, adults in custody, AICs, are released. And they, do you have a driver's license? Do you, um, uh, um, or a birth certificate? All of those things that perhaps because of your length of stay uh, and for the reasons that you're there, you don't have. So that when they come out, they've they've got some footing. Sometimes they've already got housing set up for them. But there's an accountability piece. There's a parole officer, right? Okay. Now, so just take that model for a second and hang on to it. So what what if we could say, um, uh, I, um, one of the uh, an officer has you know pulled somebody over for whatever reason has found that they they've got they're holding, right? Um, and say, you know what, we're not taking you to jail. Our model is now going to be, we're gonna turn you over to community health, Mm. community mental health, community substance recovery, whatever we wanna call it. We're gonna say, you you know, not, and and, and I'm not quite sure, you know, how this would work out because it's, you know, in the brain, right? Just an idea. and, and get them over to services where they can actually sit down and maybe maybe they're high, you know, maybe they're, they really are caught in their addiction. Let's, let's give them a timeout 
And, and the burns have that ability to do that. You know, some of the, some of the infrastructure that's being um, uh, funded with the marijuana tax money uh, are the burns, you know, places where, where folks can go and, and if they're having an episode, they can sit quietly. I think um, Ben uh, has got some great um, resources around that over in Deschutes County. You know, take them there and, you know, let them have that moment. Let them in and not a jail setting. Okay. Mm -hmm. But a mm -hmm. setting where, um, you know, maybe their loved ones can come and say, hey, you know, is it time to do intervention? Is it time to get you into treatment? And have that real serious conversation with those individuals, um, and and then let's let's say they elect not not to take treatment. Okay, well maybe then there's follow up that's done. I don't know then, but I think there that... there has to be a better way to do this. And and so when you talk about repealing Measure One Ten, my big in the sky would be turn it back. You know, you you um, in order to do something different. The constitution needs to be changed. And, and that's the tricky part. So how do we send that back to the voters? How and, and I would almost hope that it could be a referral from the legislature to say, um, how do we um, keep the piece that we, we know is working and that we want to continue to work? I mean, it's much like... Um, uh, Mike from Oregon Recovery uh, said, you know, we got, we got to build those services before we we open the floodgates, right? And we opened those floodgates and we didn't even have services ready. And so, um, and, and on that criminality piece, what, you know, we say, okay, how, how now are we going to, to address that? And I don't, I'm not an attorney, truth be told. Oh, so I don't even know how to go about doing that statutorily. Um, you know, and maybe it can be done within the confines of, of law that's already on the books. I don't know that. Um, well, I, I, I really like the, that first half of what you're describing because like, um, one of the things I asked at my kickoff in my, I had a, an audience there and I asked people to raise their hand if someone they love has been impacted by addiction or behavioral health issues. And as you can imagine, everybody like room of a hundred people, like yeah. everybody's hand is up. And so my personal experience with this with someone that I love in my family, direct family, um, if, if the only way he's going to get access to treatment is if he, a person who's in crisis, who's struggling with addiction, makes the decision on his own, it, was, it, it will not happen. And so that's what I know. That's the bridge that we have to, like, if we can't just rely on someone who's going through a medical like they're, they're navigating a medical crisis. Um, they're not always thinking um, in terms of what's best Absolutely. for them. And so, yeah, I, I think you're, what you were describing is some, some iteration of that seems like a system that. Yeah. You know, and, and, you know, and here again, Ben, you know, um, loved ones lost to suicide, um, loved ones um, with mental illness. I mean, you know, diagnosed mental illness. Um, loved ones with with other addictions. I mean, you're absolutely right that you know um, we can talk from the heart about those those the, the ones that we still have and the ones that we've lost, right? Um, but having that time out, you know, and and you're right, maybe maybe they aren't at the point where they're ready. But if you have something where you can follow back up, you know, a warm a warm uh, wrap around of some sort. I don't know. I mean, 
you know, I'm, I'm an optimist. I mean, the glass is half full, you know, give me lemonade, lim- give me lemons and I'm going to make lemonade, you know, um, uh, you know, we have to go through life. I mean, and, 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 you know, um, it's not easy and um, it, it's obviously highly emotional because it's people and we have emotions and, we, you know, can be, uh, things are emotional, it, even, um, you know, uh, in, in the best of days, right? So that, that kind of takes me back to that big table, you know, how, who, who are all the partners that need to come together to talk about this and who's going to be the leader on that? And I'm raising my hand saying, I want to lead that. I think, you know, that's important work. It's, it, you know, at the end of the day, it's helping somebody um, who needs help. And, and um, we know has value by the pure fact that they're a human being. Thank you, Rhett Morgreen. That was uh, fantastic. We've really enjoyed having you. I know Ben's got to get going. Um, where can people find out about your campaign? Well, I have a website, but I also have an email and I have a phone number. Um, I do respond to email. It takes me a little bit longer, usually not within 24 hours, but I try to get it done. Uh, phone calls, I usually try to get back within, within a day. My website is www.rmgsd10.com. So Raquel Moore Green, Senate District 10, all kind of mm, <laughs> And my email address is my first name, Raquel, R-A-Q-U-E-L. Yes, it is Spanish. Yes, my mother was Puerto Rican and my middle name is Consuelo. So <laughs> that's awesome. And um, my first name at rmgsd10.com. And my phone awesome. number 503-362-5021. Very brave. All right. And the phone number well, out there. <laughs> we'll, we'll trust our listeners to be good and use that, um, use that appropriately and well. So thank you uh, so much. And we've enjoyed having you. Thank you so much, Ben. It's wonderful to see you again, even if it's it's it was the ad tour, right? (laughs) That's right. That's right. (laughs) Thanks, Representative. Thank you so much, both. Thanks.